A hundred years ago, in 1923, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgeware Beach Hotel, Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. The following were present. The president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest trader in Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, and the head of the world's greatest monopoly. Now, collectively, these tycoons controlled more wealth than there was in the whole of the US Treasury. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of the country to follow their examples. 25 years later, this is what had happened to these men. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life, and he died broke. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died in Chicago, insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, served a term in Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. The greatest trader in Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Fraser, committed suicide. And the head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivor Kruger, also committed suicide. All these men had learned to make money, but not one of them had learned to live. This morning, we're dealing with a subject that hits head-on the materialistic age that we've been brought up in and shaped by. Perhaps if you were brought up somewhere other than a first world country, you may have escaped that trap. But for us here, the vast majority of us here, we have been brought up, we have been shaped by this materialistic culture. And furthermore, this love of money and possessions so characterizes our age that it has swamped the way that many Christians think and act, so much so that I have no doubt that much of what I will say will provoke and will upset many of you here this morning. Probably more than any other subject, it will set people here thinking of excuses why they shouldn't do what God's Word says. And most of those excuses will be dressed up in religious language and decorated with secular common sense. But let me remind you, my task isn't to say what you want to hear, but it is to declare what God's Word clearly 
reveals. That is what we stand on as a church here at Charlotte Chapel. And therefore, as we come to this subject of giving, I plead with you to let God's words challenge our thinking and shape our behavior, even when it hurts. Now, we're looking at 2 Corinthians 9, and the context of this passage is to do with a special collection that was being made by the Corinthian church for the the Christians who were living in Judea, who were suffering during a time of severe famine. And Paul has urged them to complete what they started. And he's also written about those who've been appointed to transport the gift to Jerusalem. And then in verse 6, he gets down to some very specific principles about Christian giving. The first is this. I want us to notice Paul's concern, and it is to give generously to God. Paul's concern is to give generously to God. And look, I'm afraid we can't avoid this. I'm afraid we can't gloss over the subject For Paul's explicit concern in these verses is to encourage the Corinthian Christians to give abundantly to God's work. And he backs up that challenge in three ways. Number one, he says it's pictured in nature. It's pictured in nature. Verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Or go on to verses 10 and into verse 11. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. You see, here are illustrations which are drawn from nature. And Paul says, The more you sow, the more you will receive. It's a principle that they'd be familiar with. And Paul says this applies in the realm of giving as well. The more you give, the more you will be blessed. And his argument is, so therefore give generously to God's work. So it's pictured in nature, but secondly, he says it's portrayed in Scripture. You see, commentators see in these verses a number of allusions to Old Testament passages Notably from the book of Proverbs. See if you can see how they are echoed by Paul. Let me just give you uh, three passages. Proverbs 11, 23 to 24. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Or Proverbs 19, 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Proverbs 22, verse 9. A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. And then, of course, in this passage we're looking at, there's also an echo of what Jesus himself said on this matter. There in Luke 6, verse 38, Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Paul bases his challenge 
to give generously to God, not only because the principle is pictured in nature, but also because it is even more clearly spelt out in the Scriptures. But an even greater reason to rise to this challenge is because, thirdly, it is patterned in God. It is patterned in God. In other words, Paul is saying that we should give generously because this is what God does. He's already hinted at this there in chapter 8, verse 9. Just go back a little bit in the passage where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And then at the end of this chapter, verses we read earlier, comes the clearest indication of God's giving character, that this is his nature. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is this gift that's being referred to? Well, it's the giving of Jesus. He is the most obvious proof that God is a giving God. He gave us Jesus. It's a theme he later picked up in when he was writing to the church at Rome. There in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he writes this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is a generous God. This is his nature, and we see it most clearly in Jesus. Look, can I just take a bit of time out here? Because... You may be here, and this may be one of the early occasions you're, you've been in Charlotte Chapel, or you may be here and you're not a Christian, and you think, immediately you're thinking, this service is playing into entirely what you think Christians are about, what the church is about. Give money, give money, you know? And you think that's what we've seen, all those televangelists and the like. It's give money, and, and so you've come into this church and you've thought, no surprise, they're on about money. Can I just tell you, if you're new to this church, you will hardly ever hear a sermon on money. The only time something like this will be picked up is on extraordinary occasions like this, the beginning of the year when there's a particular need, or when we actually come across it in the regular expository preaching of God's Word. This is not something that you're going to hear on a regular basis. What you will be hearing on a regular basis is the good news of God's grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the best news. That's wonderful. That's God's generosity and grace to us that there is a saviour for sinners and failures and screw-ups like you, like me. That's the good news. That's what you'll be hearing Sunday after Sunday when you come to this place. Please don't get the wrong idea. That somehow it's all about money. It's about people lining their pockets. It isn't. This church is about the good news. It is about the grace of Jesus. And that's why we want more and more people to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. So that they might be saved from God's eternal condemnation. So they might be rescued from hell and know the grace and the wonder and the hope that is held out to them in the gospel of Jesus. The Savior who died for sinners on Calvary's cross. Why should we be generous givers? Because it's part of the very character and nature of God himself. And as Christians, we are called to be like God. We're called to reflect his character. So this doesn't just mean being holy and just 
and loving and creative, it also means that we should be characterized as givers as well. So Paul's concern is give generously to God. But as we go through this passage, we notice, secondly, God's comfort. And God's comfort is this. He gives generously to us. He gives generously to us. Now, look, we must be clear at this point. Although Paul explicitly outlines the blessings for those who give generously, he doesn't do this to provide motivation. In other words, he isn't saying, as some televangelists say, you know, give to God and you'll get rich. You know, it's here, you know, invest in the church and, and somehow, magically, mysteriously, you'll be rich and that's the reason for you to give. Nothing of the sort. Rather, he outlines these points to demonstrate the obvious principle that God can be trusted. And he applies it in three areas. He applies it in the area of meeting physical needs. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul doesn't say having all that you want. Rather, he says that for those who give generously to God, they will be those who have all that they need. Do you know, it's often been said that God is no man's debtor, and how true that is. Every single person I know who's ever taken giving to God seriously has never been in need of that which is essential. As Paul says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. You see, I think the trouble is what we consider to be essential, what we need, is so often determined by the impact of advertising and our peers and not by a realistic and biblical view of our lives. If we're to take God seriously in this matter of giving, then I promise you, on the basis of what the Bible teaches, that Almighty God, the creator of all things, will provide us with all that we need. With all that we need. J.L. Kraft, the founder of the Kraft Cheese Corporation, who had given approximately 25% of his enormous income to Christian causes for many years said this, the only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. There is the meeting of physical needs, but then secondly, there is the providing of spiritual opportunities. Providing spiritual opportunities. You see, not only will God provide our spiritual, our physical needs, more importantly, he will provide us with spiritual opportunities. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, Paul connects a giving heart with a serving heart. If you're an obedient giver... You'll also be someone who has increasing opportunities to do good to others. They naturally go together. So there will be 
a provision of spiritual opportunities. But then thirdly, it will be producing godly character. Producing godly character. Verse 10, Paul writes, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You see, it shouldn't surprise me that when I fix my eyes on Jesus and seek to be like him, by his grace, I am changed. You see, unlike the tele-evangelist, Paul is not saying give to get. He's not saying that your own material prosperity is guaranteed to increase. But he is saying that the result of you trusting in Jesus will mean increasing spiritual usefulness. You see, these are some of the glorious byproducts of taking God's word seriously in this whole matter of giving. We probably never imagined that the generous giving of money can have such an impact in so many ways for the kingdom of God. And maybe one of the major reasons that we see gospel weakness today in this land is that we're such blind followers of materialism and haven't yet discovered the blessing and joy of generous giving. So there's God's comfort as well as Paul's concern. But thirdly, let's talk about our conduct. For practical obedience is required. Practical obedience is required. You see, here's the bottom line. This is the application. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where the principles that Paul has laid down are to be put into practice. It's summed up in verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think there are two things that we need to say at this point. Let's talk about the amount. The amount. You see, this is the big question. How much should we give? But as Graham told us earlier, we're not told that the passage before us, each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So there's no legalism here. There's no set requirement What we do know, however, is that it should be in proportion to our income. For we read this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 2. Now, about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. You know, so often we hear the Old Testament expression, tithe used. Graham, again, used it in the talk. It means 10% of our income. But Paul never mentions a tithe. I do think, however, it's fair to say that he wouldn't have expected New Testament believers to give less under grace than the Jews did under law. But what that proportion is must be determined by the individual conscience. I love how C.S. Lewis wisely summed the matter up. He said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And John Wesley 
said this, any Christian who takes for himself more than the plain necessities of life lives in an open, habitual denial of the Lord. And Wesley lived what he preached. Sales of his books often earned him £1,400 a year, which in those days was an enormous amount. But he only spent £30 on himself and he gave the rest away. He always wore inexpensive clothes and dined on simple food. If I leave behind me £10, he once wrote, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I lived and died a thief and a robber. You see, here's the challenge. God calls upon his people to be like him, to be sacrificial givers. And in many majority world areas where the church is flourishing, that is most obviously seen. There's a delight, there's an eagerness to give. The offering is the favorite part of the service. I read of one African community where the dancing and celebrating is not centered upon the singing, but it breaks out when it comes to the offering. And... uh, My son worked for a while in Uganda. We went out to visit him. We went to a church there. And sure enough, it came to an offering. And folks were dancing down the aisle to give their money full of joy. And my son and I, well, particularly this old white guy doing his white man dancing, going down the aisle with the money because it was just wonderful. It was glorious. As opposed to something of the experience here in the West. And during the time that Romania was under communist rule, and I should have checked this out with the Petrick family, but maybe they can confirm or otherwise. I understand there was a law that said that they were only allowed to give 2.5% of their income to charitable organizations. You see, the authorities were trying to minimize the opportunity for any anti-government organizations. So during that time, the Romanian believers were searching for loopholes in the law so that they'd be able to give 10% or more. They had less and were looking for ways to give more. We have more and we're looking for ways to give less. In fact, the government gives us positive tax advantages in giving. If you are a taxpayer, lots can be recovered from the government in giving. Yet so many Christians are looking for loopholes in the scripture to avoid doing it. What an indictment. In fact, statistics show that in this country, the average church member contributes between one and a half and two and a half percent of their total income, specifically to the Lord's work. And statistics show that poorer households give twice as much of their disposable income as wealthier households. The poor give more. We lived in Bristol for 30 years and we discovered the area we uh, lived in, Easton, the poorest area in Bristol. Do you know what happened? One of the regular visitors around our street were the scalpers, you know, the people who are trying to get money for charity. Why did they come to the poorest areas? Because they knew people in the poorest areas were the most generous. They didn't go to the nice, closeted, well-off, middle-class areas in Bristol. They didn't go to Clifton. They came to Easton because the poorest are the most generous. 
And the reason for the poverty of our giving is that we've been shaped more by the way our materialistic culture operates than by God's word or God's character. Donald Hay, one time fellow and tutor in economics at Jesus College Oxford, wrote this. It is, I believe, one of the greatest failings of the church today that the consumption patterns of Christians apparently differ so little from those of unbelievers around them. There could be no better indication to our materialistic neighbours that our faith means very little to us than there should be no difference in the very area in which our materialistic society is dedicated, the accumulation of possessions, the amount. But then there's the emotion spoken of here. Verse 7, each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you'll probably be aware that the literal translation of that word cheerful giver, it means God loves an hilarious giver. You see, we're not into making people give because of guilt. Some charities do that. You'll see some of the adverts on TVs and you'll see starving children or you'll see caged animals. But the Christian is not to be motivated on the basis of guilt. Rather, the real joy comes when there is an opportunity to be like Jesus, when there is an opportunity to serve others. Paul writes this back in chapter 8, the first four verses of that chapter. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. See, the trouble once again with the church in the West is that it does not seek its joy in serving Christ. But it seeks its joy through material possessions. And I want you to understand that the reason I'm dealing so strongly with this subject is not primarily in an attempt to improve the church's finances. Now, some of you probably thought, oh, let, that, that's what they did. They said to Andy, Andy, get up there, preach a sermon on giving, and then that will really help our church finances, and that's what it's going to be about on that Sunday. And Andy, you try and use that emotional pressure and whatever pause powers of oratory you may have to try and get people to give more money. No, the primary reason for encouraging Christians to give generously and sacrificially is that they might know joy and blessing, that they might be freed from the idolatry of this present materialistic age, that they might discover the riches of God's grace abundantly poured out into the lives of those who trust God's promises. My friends, this is not some manipulative event. This is not some, oh, let's keep Charlotte going, let's, let's try and develop our name. I couldn't care less about the name of Charlotte Chapel and neither does the leadership. What we care about, first and foremost, is the name of King Jesus and we want him to be glorified and we want him to be known and we want men and women in the city of Edinburgh and beyond to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is our call, that is our vision, that is our mission. 
You see, the first thing we should do whenever any money comes in is to set aside the proportion that we believe should be God's. And then we work out then the rest of our finances. We do not give him what is left, but we give him what is best. It's a good discipline, it's a good habit, particularly if you're younger and you're establishing a home, to, to try and have some way of accounting, working through how you're going to be spending your money. And when you do that, don't go through you and say, well, I need this, you know, if we're going to get Netflix and this and that and that and the other. And let's see what we've got left over. Oh, that's great, we've got two quid that we can give the church. You don't start that way. When you're putting together your budget, you first of all start with what you believe is right under God to give to his people. And you give it to the church. And then you work out the rest of your budget accordingly. As George Muller said, God judges what we give by what we keep. But someone says, well, what about my future? You know, I'm saving up hard so that in due course I can you know, have a nice house and marry a partner and provide for any kids that we have. Well, all I know is that the best thing we can leave our children is an example of obedient and godly living. That will benefit them more than any large legacy ever will. Indeed, to imagine that money can bring happiness is the biggest lie of our age, and we are fools if we perpetuate the myth. Just listen to the testimonies of these multimillionaires. I've made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. That was John W. Rockefeller. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. So wrote W.H. Vanderbilt. I am the most miserable man on earth. That was John Jacob Astor. I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Henry Ford, millionaires seldom smile. Andrew Carnegie. But I must hurry on. Let's conclude by looking at the consequence. What is the consequence to all of this? And it is this. God is glorified and we are blessed. God is glorified, we are blessed. Let me quickly say why. First of all, there are more possibilities to give. 2 Corinthians 9.11, we read it, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. <laughs> Isn't that great? God gives more to us so that we can give back more to him. In other words, as God blesses our giving, it won't be so that we can have more to keep for ourselves, but rather that we can know the further joy of giving again. Secondly, there is more praise of God. We read this, verses 12 to 13. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. People will praise God for your obedience. There is more praise of God. Lastly, there are more prayers for you. We read it, 2 Corinthians 9.14. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. 
because of the surpassing grace God has given you. More prayers for you. People were praying for the Corinthian church. Oh Lord, thank you for the Corinthian church. Thank you for the generous way that they gave. Thank you for them. Lord, we pray for them. We pray your blessing. Look, there are envelopes there for church members. Uh, please do pick them up after the service. Go and have a look. Yours will be there. But I would plead with you, whoever you are here, here this morning, forgive us that it's been about money. Forgive us that this service is... Uh, overrun uh, by quite a bit more than it would normally do so but these are important matters for your blessing for the glory of God these are matters we cannot idly go by and I want you before God if you are a follower of Jesus Christ to work out even at lunchtime to sit down and work out get out a piece of paper and work out what it is you believe you should be giving to God. And if you haven't yet started this grace of giving, oh, that you would do so. And that you'd know the blessing and that you would leave a legacy to children and others behind who said that one trusted in the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are a giving God. And Father, we realize that a subject like this cuts right into us in our materialistic culture. We, we, we really don't see how much we've been infected by the culture in which we are living, the spirit of the age in which so much depends on our comfort and our well-being and what we have and our status and our standing. Oh, Father, first and foremost, may we be those who trust in Jesus. Lord, even with this cost of living crisis may we be marked as those who trust in Jesus Lord give us wisdom may we be good stewards of all that you've given us but help us to trust in Jesus help us to be obedient to your word and to the pattern of your words and to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse into the church Lord forgive us that at times we just like to keep control and keep power and distribute money as we think is best done rather than bringing it into of the house of God. Father, help us, we pray, to work 